Thank you so very much. Good morning. Well, if you haven't done so already, a great opportunity now to take our Bibles and turn together to Isaiah chapter 55. This, I love this chapter. This is just uh, so good. But isn't everything in Isaiah so good, I'm telling you. So today we're, we're looking at verses 1 down through verse 13 together, and we're going to reach that significant point where the Messiah sort of breaks in, breaks forth. And in particular, when you get to verse 4, you're going to be able to spot the distinctives of the Messiah that are found here in these verses. Again, amazing. It's just amazing. Eight centuries prior, you are being given a messianic promise. And this promise comes with it extraordinary detail as to what you're to be looking for when it comes to this one born in Bethlehem that you and I know to be Jesus Christ. So we found our way, Lord willing, now to Isaiah chapter 55. And we're going to look to our Lord together in prayer. And our Father, what we want to do now is to explore your word together. We're going to be exploring you together. You're infinite. You're eternal. You're unchangeable. You see the future better than we can understand our past. You stand outside of time, yet through Jesus Christ, you broke into time. And you help us to make connections, connecting the eternal plan to what took place in the Garden of Eden when humanity fell into sin. How generation by generation, the Jews became carriers of this promise transmitters of this promise. We get Isaiah who eight centuries prior to Christ's coming could speak of a, a virgin birth, could speak of a suffering servant, could speak in a threefold way of verse four uh, distinctives regarding Jesus. You've given us so much and so, Father, what we want to do is to explore your word and explore you, though we know we can't even so much as scratch the surface. But thank you for the privilege. So, Father, these moments are important. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to express personality. We're here, Father, to be able to plunge into the depths of who you are and what you've penned and then relate the timeless to us in a timely way. To take the changeless truths and merge them into the changing times, giving us direction for living. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds, shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. On Tuesday this week, and Tuesdays are my days off, so I find myself working around the, the property, around the house. I was upstairs, and I came across uh, it was an invitation of decades ago to a Christmas gathering. It was for various leaders of the congregation to come together, spend a little time reflecting over the course of the year and what's coming. And it had listed RSVP, respond very promptly. Yes, sir. As I looked at that, gazed at that, I immediately began to link it to what we were considering here this morning. Because what you and I are considering this morning, in many ways, are, in, are Christmas invitations. What I want to do with you, as we look very carefully at these 13 verses, is to explore the invitations. The invitations that are found here in these verses. Take the changeless truths and link them now to these changing times, because we always want to be relevant, you see. And ask, how can we take this, use this, in a way in which the invitations that God delivers in his word have direct bearing upon the way in which we're going to live our lives? Let's check it out. The first invitation comes out of verses 1 through 5. We're considering, considering God's promised gift to the Messiah, aren't we? in these 8th century B.C. promises. I want you to notice the first of the invitations. It comes out of verses 1 through 5. And the first invitation is here in verse 1, to come, to come. Notice how this begins. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's just camp on that for a minute, verse 1. Now, as we have sometimes said, periodically, repetition is God's means of getting our attention. Notice how many times the word come here is utilized in this first invitation. God now is going to use various word pictures as a means for offering you and me uh, a Christmas invitation, if you will, to come to him. But there is an RSVP attached. Notice how this begins to unfold. Come, everyone. This is, this is expansive, isn't it? But come, everyone who thirsts. Now, I would argue that in today's culture, in today's society, there are all kinds of thirst quenchers out there. But there is only one who truly satisfies. There is one who you and I might refer to as offering living water to a woman who is standing by a well in John chapter 4. And Jesus engages her in conversation regarding this whole matter of thirst. Now, what we find Isaiah doing rather brilliantly at this point is that he is going to use the first of several word pictures to draw you, to draw me in to what it is that this invitation entails, of what it's all about. 
But it begins with this whole idea to you, for me, we're to come. We're to come to the Messiah. It's expansive. Everyone who thirsts. But in this Advent season, what you and I have got to do is to pause and look around at all the uh, alternative thirst quenchers that are out there where people are trying to have their thirst for a life fulfilled, quenched by something other than Jesus. And then they wonder, but why do they still feel so empty when the gifts are open and the wrapping paper eventually is taken up off the floor and put away? We still have to live life. And why is it that, spiritually speaking, I am still thirsty and what I'm looking for in life thus far doesn't seem to satisfy. What you and I have to do is to look for those that are looking for thirst quenchers in life but still find themselves unfulfilled. And then take them not to dead waters, not dead sea experiences, but to living waters found in Jesus Christ. Come. Everyone, everyone who thirsts, and then you hear this Christmas carol break in. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And so he begins with come. Notice the repetition here. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. But now, what I want you to see here is that he changes the dynamic, shifts the word pictures. He began with the physical need a physical illustration of a spiritual reality. Now he shifts to a financial illustration of a spiritual reality. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And you say, Gare, now wait a second here. If I have no money, then how do I buy? You're asking a great question. Because the reality is, this is Grace. Now, he's going to use various word pictures to seize your attention that we're missing something in life. We came into this world missing something. That something is the someone. It's God. And so he shifts from the physical dimension to the financial dimension. But yet the calm is still there. The invitation is there. And there's an RSVP attached. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And I smiled. I was reading out of one of my favorite uh, sites, the Jerusalem Post. Periodically, this story gets told during the Christmas season. Once there was a poor woman who greatly desired a bunch of grapes from the king's conservatory for her sick child. And she took 
half of what she had and went to the king's gardener and tried to purchase the grapes. She was repulsed. A second effort brought still more of what she had. Same results. But then it happened. The king's daughter heard the angry words of the gardener and the crying of the woman inquired into the matter. And when the poor woman had told her story, it was the princess who said, dear woman, you are mistaken. My father is not a merchant, but a king. His business is not to sell, but to give. Whereupon she plucked the bunch from the vine and gently and dropped it into the woman's hands. And I thought about grace. And we come into this world spiritually impoverished. We come into this world eternally thirsty. We come into this world lacking from the get-go because Adam and Eve sinned and we've inherited the sinful nature. And there is something that leaves us short of the mark. And yet here God graciously and yet at the same time realistically says, come. He who has no money, come buy and eat. And you say, but I have no money, but bear this in mind. Grace is free, but grace is costly, eternally. It is free for us. It was costly to Jesus. Jesus pays the price so you can come freely. At the same time with this word usage, the metaphors are such that he forces us to realize we don't have it. We just don't have it to please God. So he shifts, you see, from the physical dimension to the financial dimension, utilizing various word pictures. After uh, everyone who thirsts come to the water, see who has no money, come buy, eat, come buy, wine, milk, without money, without price. You take a deep breath. And what he is now saying to you and saying to me, come, even if you don't have what you need. King and country, or pentatonics, whatever, whatever you like when it comes to little drummer boy, a newborn king to see, and then the barumpa bum bum type stuff, you see. <laughs> I have no gift to bring, ba-rum-pa-bum-bum. That's fit to give our king, ba-rum-pa-bum-bum. Shall I play for you, ba-rum-pa-bum-bum? That's music to the sovereign's ears, you see. I have no gift to give you. And God says, bum I've got something to give to you. It's Jesus. So now what he has done thus far is that through word pictures, he has moved you from the physical dimensions through the financial dimensions. And you're saying, I'm lacking. 
and Jesus fills the lack. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Maybe is that the reason why you're all spent? And perhaps in this, in this Advent season, you're trafficking with people who are spent. Your labor for that which does not satisfy, and we're living among people that are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. They are so unfulfilled in life, and they wonder, where do I get filled? Here's what I want you to do now. Join me. He shifts in his repetition from the usage of the come, which appears repeatedly, to now the word picture of the auditory canal of the human body, using words like listen and incline your ear, hear, check it out with me. Because now in the heart of verse 2, here he challenges you, challenges me, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. It's as if he's saying, by grace, I am providing for you the richness of what you and your poverty cannot simply afford eternally. And so now, to grip our attention again, he shifts. If the word listen didn't quite capture it, then in verse 3 he says, incline your ear. And then again, come. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Pause before I get into the extraordinary statement of what comes next. It was breakfast back in New England. Had the privilege of sitting at the breakfast table with Kent and Barbara Hughes esteemed senior pastor of the College Church of Wheaton. His brother-in-law came to know Jesus as Savior through the ministry of the free church that I shepherded. And we were talking, and we were thinking, and we were allowing ourselves to ponder the landscape of evangelicalism and then he mentioned that it was a hot afternoon in Dallas of 1951, small class of graduating students sat around the school's president, Dr. Chafer, who is delivering his lecture from a wheelchair. And the students who sat, listened, were about to graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. And at the end of the class, uh, this elderly man near death reached into his pocket, pulled out a cloth, wiped the perspiration from his face, just finished his final lecture on his favorite subject, grace, the grace of God. As Schaefer closed his eyes, and they are told that tears welled up within them, his last words to that graduating class were these, quote, gentlemen, for half my life, I've been teaching the grace of God. But I am just beginning to understand it. And gentlemen, it is magnificent. It is magnificent. 
I want you to see how through the use of the word pictures, from the physical dimension through the financial dimension, and then the various ways in which the auditory canal is being connected to the, the challenge to take this in, allow what you're hearing to shape your soul, then what does he do? What does he do? You're still in verse 3. This is God. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And you say, Gar, here we go again. Why, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it seems like you're always referencing this week by week by week. God made a promise to David. And in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the evil one put that promise to the test when Jesus Christ was dying on that cross. And yet God chose to use global expression of truth where in various languages above the head of Jesus, this is King of the Jews. But in order to connect Calvary to Bethlehem, don't overlook what was said to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father, David. And that throne has an everlasting emphasis attached to it. And now you have just connected together uh, generation by generation aspects of a promise in the course of time. Astounding. and you're connecting Bethlehem to Calvary. And now what you do is you offer the everlasting aspect of grace to the one who's saying, life doesn't satisfy, I'm still thirsty, um, I still feel so impoverished when it comes to the stuff of life. Well, you're in verse 3, and he says, this is my steadfast, sure love for David, the Hebrew word, my favorite, hesed. Uh, we struggle in the English language to even come up with a proper use for that word. Loving faithfulness seems to fall short of the mark. But then, but then, what I want you to see now, and we've italicized this for you in verses 4 and verse 5. Three particular distinctives of the Messiah are now being shared in this little section. Check them out. And notice how they are wedded together with the beholds of verse 4 and verse 5. Again, he's using repetition to capture your attention. The visual to communicate the verbal. Behold, I make him, number one, a witness to the peoples. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, he was being a witness to the truth. And when Christ died on that cross, what was being proclaimed by Pilate's writings, king of the Jews in various languages, he was being a witness to the peoples, but the peoples is in the plural because this is for both Jew and Gentile. 
For you see, the Jews were to be the means, the vehicle by which the gospel, good news, was being proclaimed to the world. He is, first of all, the witness to the peoples. Second of all, a leader. Thirdly, commander. And the word commander carries with it the idea, not only the commander of troops, but also one who issues commands, such as a new commandment I give you in a Monday Thursday service, that you love one another. You've grouped together now the three distinctives of this promised Messiah, but notice how verse 4 bookends. It's to the peoples, and then it is for the peoples. It's grace. It's for you. It's for me, Jew, Gentile alike. So what does he do for you? To arrest your attention, he delivers the goods with a second behold. Behold. You shall call a nation that you do not know. And now the Jews would be looking at one another and saying, you mean this is more than just the Jews? It's for Gentiles as well? Those Babylonians, those Assyrians? A nation that did not know you shall run to you. Why? Here's your answer. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And a Dr. Chaffer says, it's magnificent. It's magnificent. And when Handel composed the Messiah for 23 days, when he withdrew from everything in the world, he was just immersed in his music, and that the food brought to him was often left untouched. I'm reading now from the biography describing his feeling when the hallelujah chorus burst on into his mind. Handel said, quote, I did think, I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself, grace. And when you capture the greatness of grace, it's because you've captured the greatness of God. So let the come penetrate your heart. Notice the ways he shifts from the physical dimension into the financial dimension. He utilizes the auditory canal through various word pictures. Notice the twofold beholds. Notice the threefold distinctives of Messiah. Witness, leader, commander, and he brings home the goods because of the Lord you are God and of the Holy One of Israel. And then you can almost feel him taking your breath away when he then adds, for he, for he has glorified you. And so for all those that are looking to satisfy their thirst, who all those who feel so impoverished in the face of all things world-oriented, God says, first of all, come. Now, I'm standing there upstairs a Tuesday morning and my mind goes back. I can't quite figure out what gathering that was that, uh, for the invitation. All I know is just that it said, come. And furthermore, there was an RSVP. 
so here comes the second invitation. If the first was to come, the second is to seek. And now you see it in verse 6 down through verse 13. And what do these two invitations have in common? Notice how the word begins. In verse 1, it was come. In verse 6, it's seek. So in dramatic initial form, each invitation brings before you something of an RSVP. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's an RSVP attached to this. You are to respond and respond quickly to what it is that God is saying, what God is doing. Pete Maravich understood that. Pete Maravich, for those that love love sports, and all Christians love sports, you see. Uh, he, he was an extraordinary basketball player. Loved watching him play. Collegiate years, NBA. But he retired unhappy and he retired empty. Like so many people in this world. But you see, that wasn't the end of his story. Because in 1983, Maravich surrendered his life to Christ. And for the next four years, his driving passion was to share Jesus with others and the joy that he found in Christ. And then early in 1988, he suddenly died of heart failure. He was only 40 years old. It gripped the sports world, seized our attention. Why did God take him, one person asked, in the sports realm? Why didn't he allow Pete to keep going? A Christian asked. The opportunity is to lead more people to Christ with his extraordinary testimony. But then what struck me was the autopsy. And here's where the answer might be found. Doctors discovered that Pete Maravich had a congenital heart problem that should have prevented him from even playing basketball to begin with. In fact, they said he probably should never have lived beyond the age of 20. And I remember reading that and then applying this to the Pete Maraviches of this world, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, you continue forward with all of this. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteousness, unrighteous man, his thoughts. In other words, we need to see conversion. We need to see uh, putting faith and trust in Messiah. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will, I love this, not merely pardon. It's a financial word again. Abundantly pardon, you see. That's your God. And now, for those of us that are always trying to figure God out, what is he now doing? What's this all about? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Why am I facing what I'm facing? Why the experience? And have you ever had the question of, uh, 
maybe I made a mistake. Maybe we should have, and then you fill in the blank. And God speaks. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sitting with some friends in Utah weeks and weeks ago, I thought about this. We were talking about a particular Billy Graham crusade. And my friend John had been a counselor on the floor, one of the leaders in the congregation in New England. And as he was telling the story of a man who had come forward at invitation, in essence, to come, the invitation to seek, and yet the man who came forward on the floor, he found, John found out, as he thought was his opportunity to lead someone to the Lord, in reality came just to find out what's going on down here. Why are all these people here? My mind went back to this story from 60 Minutes. Harry Reasoner. As he was grappling with the meaning of Christmas, And here is someone who produces news that simultaneously is getting people to grapple with the good news. The basis for this tremendous annual burst of gift buying and parties near hysteria is a quiet event that Christians believe actually happened a long time ago, Reisner said. He went on to say to his audience, you can say that in all societies there has always been a midwinter festival and that many of the trappings of Christmas are almost violently pagan, so he claims. But you come back to the central fact of the day and quietness of Christmas morning, the birth of God on earth. And it leaves you and it leaves me only three ways of accepting Christmas. One way is cynically. It's a time to make money or endorse the making of it. Second, one is graciously the appropriate attitude for non-Christians who wish their fellow citizens all the joys to which their beliefs entitle them. But then there's a third way, reverently. If this is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless babe, it's a very important day. It's a startling day. Of course, my guess is that the whole story that a virgin was selected by God to bear his son as a way of showing his love, concern for humanity is not an idea that's been popular with many a theologian. In fact, it might seem somewhat illogical and theologians tend to like logic almost as much as they like God. It's so revolutionary a thought that it probably could only come from a God that is beyond logic, beyond theology. It has a magnificent appeal, as I think of Schaefer. It's magnificent. 
Almost nobody has seen God. Almost nobody has real idea of what he is like. And the truth is that among men, the idea of seeking, of seeing God suddenly and standing in a very bright light is not necessarily the most comforting idea. But then again, everyone has seen babies, and most people like them. And if God wanted to be loved, this was feared, he moved in the right direction here. If he wanted to know people, his people, as well as rule them, he moved correctly, for a baby growing up learns all about people. And if God wanted to be intimately a part of mankind, humankind, he moved correctly, for the experiences of birth and familyhood are of most intimate and precious experiences, and so it's almost supralogical. It is either all falsehood or else, or else, the truest thing in the world. It's the story of the great innocence of God the baby, God in the form of humanity. And it has such a dramatic shock toward the heart that if it is not true, so Christians, nothing is true. As he finished his thoughts with these words, so if a Christian is touched only once a year, the touch is still worth it. And maybe, maybe on some given Christmas, some final quiet morning, the touch will take Reasoner was grappling. How do you explain a God and humanity, two natures in one person, of babe connecting Bethlehem to Calvary? But then Isaiah answers that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Right when you thought you figured God out, right when you thought you've got his ways formulated, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. And now what does he do? You take a deep breath because this is, this is just so Isaiah for you. Because he again now finds a different way in nature to communicate eternal truths. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but... There, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. And now, one of the things in verse 11 that drives me pastorally, drives me to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, nothing topical is verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent. Pray if you have a loved one that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior but was exposed to biblical truth early on. Claim these words, that it would not return void. The family of Dr. Arv V. Ryu understood that. Classical scholar, translator for many years, 
and he rendered Homer into the English language in the Penguin Classics. He was 60 years old. Uh, grandchildren had given up on him, coming to know the Lord. Lifelong agnostic. When the same firm, Penguin Classics, invited him to translate the Gospels. Now his son said, oh, this is going to be interesting to see what Dad makes of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Dad. Now as Paul, as, as, as one of my favorite uh, newscasters, Paul Harvey puts it, the rest of the story. The answer is forthcoming. A year later, Ryu came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. In an interview with J.B. Phillips, Ryu confessed that he had undertaken the task of translation because of an intense desire to satisfy himself, and I understood that in relationship to Isaiah 55. As to the authenticity and spiritual content of the Gospels, he was determined to approach the documents as if they were newly discovered Greek manuscripts. And then Mr. Phillips asked, did you get the feeling that the whole material was extraordinarily alive? And the scholar said, I got the deepest feeling, he said. My work changed me. I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of God. And now, after grappling with the fact that God's word does not return void, you pull it together because you know what he does next? It's such a sweeping chapter. Past, present, future. He fast forwards you in what is still to come. This is almost millennial type teaching at this point in 12 and 13. Notice again the visuals as a means of illustrating truths. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands like a new heaven, new earth. And notice the transformation globally. Notice the climate changes. Notice the environmental stress in all of this. Oh, the earth might groan now, but the earth will be glorified then. For instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come forth the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord. And now you connect your dots, because didn't this, didn't verse 3 end with, I will make with you an everlasting covenant? Well, here at the end of this chapter, God also provides an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And here's your invitation. Come. The invitation. Seek. Lucy did. Aslan. Aslan. Dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. And C.S. Lewis in his great Prince Caspian describes the scene. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting, half lying between his front paws. Aslan is a picture of Jesus. 
He bent forward and just touched his nose, her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into the large wise face. Welcome, child, he said. And I marked welcome because the word come is in the word welcome. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, asked Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And for a time, she was so joyful, she did not want to speak. And such it is. When you accept the invitation and you respond with the RSVP, you come, you seek, and it's all about Jesus. Let's stand together. I want to pray first of all for anyone here who is spiritually curious but has not yet put faith in Jesus Christ and ask that if now is the time for those watching online right now or in the days to come and God's stirring your heart, now is the time. Pray in your soul these words, Lord, I accept the fact I am a sinner. I've been constantly thirsty, nothing satisfies. I feel so impoverished, I'm unfulfilled. You've exposed my inner heart. You put the mirror in front of me. I need you. So Father, on this day, I put my faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ. You said come. I now come. You said seek. I now seek. I put my faith in Jesus and him alone for salvation. I embraced the eternal life found in him and him alone. And if you prayed that prayer, I pray now that you'll share immediately with somebody close by and begin the adventure of living for Jesus. And now for all who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me pray. And Father, work in their hearts, our hearts, my heart. We are left here, as Pete Maravich was left here, and to multiply disciples for Jesus Christ, to lead others who will lead others to will lead others to you. We have a purpose. And for the one who grapples with the purpose for their life, you've given it to us. We are people of the invitation, inviting people to come, inviting people to seek. And it's all about Jesus. Thank you, Lord.
And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.